It's wonderful to see you all, and for those who I can't see, blessings on you down the hall, and asking the Lord to do marvelous things here this morning, as always. Thank you for being patient with us as we try to navigate getting everyone into seats, and please join us in praying for that, um, as I mentioned a little earlier. But before we start uh, the message this morning, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together and to hear your word unfolded, because as it is unfolded to our hearts, it gives life. It gives life and creates faith in us and moves in us, bringing us to repentance that leads to joy. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do these things, not because of any eloquence, but rather, Father, simply because your Spirit is empowering your truth. Father, protect us from error, I pray, and fill us with the truth that transforms lives Change my life today, Lord. Change the lives of each of us in some perhaps small way. And Father, may it all be to your great glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back to Romans chapter 5, and it is taking quite a while to get through chapter 5. And um, you guys just let me know if uh, you're getting bored with chapter 5. We'll move on to chapter 6, and it'll be even more exciting. I think it has been rightly said that the 21st century, in the 21st century, that's, that's our century, in case you didn't know, that love is a word that means virtually nothing anymore. We use it for everything. And so it refers to nothing. For example... On any given Sunday, Christian people may very well say things like this, that they love church and that they love pizza and that they love football and they love a long nap and in that order. <laughs> we love puppies. We love Disney World, or we did before last week. <laughs> we love the Olympics. We love chocolate pastries. And we love a perfect cup of coffee first thing in the morning. And we don't really love any of that. The point is, we use the word love so frequently and with such equality that the word itself has lost its meaning it used to be that we liked things, cars, movies, barbecue, and we would save the word love for people, family, God, but not anymore. Today, we love everything and anything, and therefore nothing at all. God's love, however, is not like that. When he expresses his love or declares that he will set his love upon someone, 
By the way, did you know that that is the term, one, one of the many biblical terms for Christian? It is this, beloved of God. Beloved of God. And when this happens, it, it means something significant. When God says in his word that he loves someone, it is significant. It is magnificent. In the Bible, divine love is so rich and so magnificent, it stretches the mind to its fullest capacities, even to begin to apprehend something of the glory of the love of God. Hymn writers sometimes make valiant attempts to verbalize something of the magnificence of God's love in a way that we can all say it together, we can all sing it together, which is wonderful. We don't merely sing because we are commanded to sing. We, we sing because we love to communicate exactly the same thing, every person in the room communicating exactly the same thing to our own hearts and to the Lord. One of my favorite hymns, as those of you who've been around for quite a while know, is a song that we, I think we sang it last week or someone played it last week, The Love of God. I don't think we're slated to sing that this morning, but think about the lyrics. Maybe you've sung this a thousand times and never really thought about the lyric, and it goes like this. Could we, could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the sky of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every scribe a man Every, every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I think that's a good attempt. Not perfect. I'm, I'm not sure how you would make it better. We should wrestle with these things. We should wrestle with them. We should ponder them. We should dive into them. We should bathe ourselves, as it were, our hearts and our minds in this great love of God. That's why I'm dragging my feet on getting through this passage. And I confess, as I've looked forward in, into the chapters ahead, you know, it's all about different aspects of the love of God and the security that we have in him, which I'm going to show you here in a few moments. This morning, I, I want to pick up the study of the love of God where we left off last week and develop it um, a little more from Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, that's okay, because there's, there's probably one in your pew. You can grab one. Let's stand together and open your Bible to Romans chapter 5. And follow along as we read this text in its context as we did last week. Um, let, me, let me just throw in a definition for someone who may not know this word because I'm going to repeat it a lot and it's, and it's in this text. And that is justify or justification. It means that God declares you 
sinner, right? God declares you righteous in his court, in his eyes. By grace, through faith, and not by works. So with that definition, let me, let me read this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also we also obtained access by faith to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. It does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. As I argued last week in the previous sermon, Paul is attempting in this section of Romans to instruct and convince his readers that their justification, again, which means God has declared you righteous on the basis of, or on, on the basis of faith rather than on works, and as I said last time, I think there were some people who were reading this thinking, no, oh, this is new. I'm not sure I can fully trust this. I mean, I believe it, but will it carry me all the way through? Will it carry me all the way through safely through the judgment? And Paul, Paul's answer, even as we have just read this section, the answer is yes, 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 yes. Have no fear. Be bold. Be convinced. You don't have to worry about whether or not you have sacrificed enough to be worthy of being declared righteous. You, you don't have to obey enough to be counted worthy or even believe enough to be counted worthy, rather, this security of ours. 
This security in our reconciliation with God finds its ultimate source in the free, unfettered, sovereign love of God. God is, in your salvation, in your justification, God is the first actor. He is the first one to move. He is the one to come to you. He doesn't wait for you to come to him. He is the first actor in your salvation and your justification. As the Apostle John said, we love him because, what class? He first loved us. God is the first actor. Listen, if God had not done something on his own initiative, his own sovereign initiative, we would be without hope and without God in this world and, and throughout eternity. We loved him because he first loved us. Now last week we focused on the first of five qualities of the love of God, namely the eternal substance of God's love. The eternal substance of God's love. And we don't have time this morning to re-preach last week's message. It's online, it's on the app, it's available to you. But let me just add one more thought to this relative to the substance of God's love. The scriptures tell us that God is love. We spent a lot of time on that last week. What I want to communicate to you is that there are very few times in the scriptures that we read God is something. One of them is God is spirit, and I, I blush at the fact that I'm not going to have time to talk about that one, but we can come back to that if you want to. The other one is God is light. God is not only love, God is Light. When you're, so when you're thinking about the love of God, you need to think about it not in a monolithic sense. Well, I know what love is. This is, this is who God is. Therefore, God is patient with everyone, and he loves everyone the same as everyone else. Everyone's going to heaven because of the love of God. You, you can see where this can, can drift into heresy very quickly. But God is not just love. He is also light. In the Bible, light is usually a reference to holiness and moral purity. Darkness, on the other hand, speaks of moral impurity and perversity and unrighteousness. So, Paul asks the church in Corinth, what fellowship has darkness with light? And the implied answer is none, especially not when it comes to God. The point that needs to be made here is that the God who is love is also a God who is light. In other words, God's love is always a holy love. It's not just a good love. It's holy love. What do you mean by that? You know, can I just remind you of the picture of the prophet Isaiah who one day walked into the temple like he'd probably done a hundred times before 
and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the, the angels that seraphim over him were declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the sound of their, their calling out and their wings. And Isaiah's response was, he threw himself on the floor as a dead man because he was convinced that he was going to die in the presence of the holy. So when we say that God's love is a holy love, we need to factor in what holiness means. God's love is always a holy love. It is always a holy love. It must always be a holy love because God is not just love, God is light. Yes, He is committed to giving us what, what is good and what is best for us. But what is good and best for us is not always what we think is good and best for us. When you're sick, you may think, what is good and best for me is to be well. And the Lord says, no, nah. no, I love you. I am absolutely in charge of your illness or whatever it is. And you have it right now because I love you. And I am doing 10,000 things in your life. And every one of them is good. Witness the fact that the author of Hebrews teaches us that the Lord disciplines those whom he, what's the next word? Loves. And notice, notice this choice of words. He disciplines those he loves and he punishes who? Ponder that for a second. Try to answer that question in your mind if you can't think of the scripture. He punishes who? Everyone whom he accepts as sons. He disciplines us for our good. The author of Hebrews says, and then he tells us why, so that we may share in his holiness. This is sanctification. God's love is not a sentimental love. It is a very purposefully, purposeful love. It is a love that is committed to the greatest thing that, that love could ever commit to on your behalf, namely, creating the likeness of Christ in you in every way. So let's dispense with this modern sentimental idea of love as meaning nothing and everything at the same time. When we talk about God's love, we're talking about something that is magnificent, almost frightening. Because it is as severe as it is comfortable and wonderful. Now, we've learned something about the nature of God's love, and we talked about that, as I said, last week. And, you know, we could just wrap up right now, I think, and just drink all of this in and 
and, and just worship God together. But I still have time, so I should fill it with more that you've come to listen to. So the nature of God's love was the first. There are five things. I'm not going to make it through all, all of them today, as you could probably guess. But there's more to come. Paul also wants us to marvel at the timing of God's love. The timing of God's love. What does he mean by the timing of God's love? Well, here we go. You know, as I read commentaries and, and dig and search and read books, uh, and people approach this from different angles, but I think the obvious one is simply this, that the timing of God's love was according to his sovereign plan. In other words, God had a time when he would set on display this saving, sanctifying love, when he would bring it, when he would fulfill the promise. And it happened at exactly the right time. Some have argued, and, and, and not wrongly, I think, but maybe not the emphasis here, that God did it at, at, at just the point in time in history when the Pax Romana happened, when there was Roman peace. The, the, Rome was no longer really at war with everybody else. And they had time to build roads and, and create educational institutions, and they, they came up with a mail system so they could deliver, you know, UPS and overnight, probably not, but... But they had a, ma a reliable mailing system. And it was at just that time when the gospel could spread freely like no other time in history. And I say, well, praise God for that. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying is God appointed a time. And that time came precisely when God ordained it to come. What I want us to see here is, is simply this. That the arrival of Messiah and his atoning work on the cross happened at exactly God's appointed time. In other words, it, it came about exactly according to God's sovereign plan. We can see this even in the Old Testament. And by the way, as I have opportunity to talk to some of our brothers in Ukraine... This is, their, this is their great hope. God has a plan. God is working that plan. Everything is going as planned. That's hope giving. But let me just give you some scriptures that would support this. Genesis 3, 15. God promised that the son, that a son of Eve would one day come to crush the serpent's head. Salvation was God's plan from the beginning. Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and he, and he will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Or we could say it differently. God with us. He's here, he's not just there He's not just transcendent. He is imminent. He's coming. Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be 
will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. There is an appointed time when the appointed child, a son of Eve, will come. And when he comes, it will be at the exact moment, which is why the wise men, the magi, were able to conclude a king has been born. How did, how did they figure that out? They saw a star. How in the world did that say king in Israel? But it did. They knew the prophecies. And, and I would suspect not to get off on this, but you know who used to live among the Magi? Daniel. I think they learned everything they needed to know from Daniel. How about this one, Matthew Matthew 1, verse 18. To Joseph, an angel appeared, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, listen, listen to this statement. The, the text continues. And here's what it says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It happened right on time. This love of God appeared right on time. You can trust this love, this promise, the security of this love, because it happened exactly as the prophets predicted. Jesus himself understood all of this. That his saving work in the world was on a divine timetable. In John chapter 13, we read this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now consider what Paul said to the church in Galatia, Galatia Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, right on time, born under the law, right on time just as it was planned from before the creation of the world. You see, there was an appointed time for Jesus to come into the world. And, and, and what we learn from Paul here is that this is God's manifestation of love to you. It's one thing for God to say that he loves you. It's another to say, I'm not just saying that I have chosen to place my love upon you, but rather, I'll prove it. I will do it. I will show you what love is. Behold, a son will be born. A son of Eve, and he will come to rescue his people. He will crush the serpent's head. 
just the right time, the time appointed by the eternal triune God, Jesus came to earth as the ultimate objective reality of the love of God for sinners. Let me, let me just say that again. And the reason I want to say it again is because I, I don't want you thinking wrongly. I, I said objective love. There is a subjective love. There's even a, a holy and godly subjective love. It's, it's, an, it's an affection. It's a feeling. It's, it's something that comes and goes, and that's wonderful. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the objective love, one that, that John said he could see and touch and handle. Namely, Jesus himself. And so God didn't wait for you to express some subjective love for him. His saving love was activated even before the creation of the world. And I would argue the creation of the world was, was created by God merely as the stage upon which he would manifest his love in the salvation of a host of sinners who are without number. That's why the Apostle John would write in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. My friends, do you wonder if your justification by faith alone, do you wonder if your justification is sufficient to take you all the way to protect you from the wrath of God in the final day? Consider this. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death. By the way, does that phrase sound familiar? We sang it just a few minutes ago. And do you know where that phrase comes from? comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death, it is because, it is because He loved you first. He's not responding to your love. You are responding to His. And by the way, again, he did it from before the creation of the world. Let me just make, put this in plain language. Before the creation of the world, he knew everything about you. Long before you were born, he knows every sin that you ever committed and will commit. He knows all that stuff that you don't want anyone else to know, and you haven't let anyone else no, but you know. This is part of God being spirit. He knows it all, and yet he loves you. You say, how can I know that he loves me? This is how you know. He sent his son to save you. As Spurgeon once said, Got to have a Spurgeon quote to make it wonderful. <laughs> Not really, but helpful. 
Spurgeon once said, he knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made and the only saint he ever loved. Let me say it again. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made and the only saint he ever loved. Why? Because it is his nature to love. And it is his delight to pour that love upon you for the eternal glory of Jesus, God's Son. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? You say, well, I'm not worthy of this. That's right. That's right. And the Lord is doing this. You say, well, why, you know, why would he make so much of me? He's not making much of you. He's making much of his son. He's setting on display the glory of his son. And you just reap the benefit of it. This is wonderful. It's truly amazing to consider the timing of God's love, the fact that every aspect of redemptive history, including your personal salvation, was written in God's book before there was yet one of them. Psalm 51. That's not right. Psalm 46. Psalm 39. Somebody else threw out a psalm. It's one of them. <laughs> It becomes all the more glorious when we consider not only when God loved us, but how God has loved us. What did God's love look like? Or another way to ask it is, what is the manner? This is the next point. What is the manner of his love? And that brings us to this next section here. The manner of God's love Look with me at verse 6. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. Now I know that you already know what I'm about to say, because I've already said it. But I want you to think about this in, in a fresh way. The centerpiece of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. The centerpiece of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is God's ultimate objective revelation of his love for you, sinner. This is the objective proof of his love for you. And try to consider this in, in, in a fresh way, as I said. Imagine, imagine the scene of Jesus' condemnation and crucifixion. The role that you play in this drama is that of Barabbas. You're in a Roman holding cell, waiting for execution, for insurrection. You've been, you've been a traitor to Rome and have murdered a man. You know your crucifixion is slated for this very day. And sure enough, a Roman guard comes along and just as expected, he, he inserts the key in your cell, he jerks the door open, he grabs you by the arm and leads you out into the open air, and then, most unexpectedly, he releases you. You are free to go. 
by the will of the people and the order of Pontius Pilate, governor of Jerusalem, a man by the name of Jesus from Nazareth has been condemned in your place. He is at this very moment being affixed by the feet and hands to a rough wooden cross that was reserved for you. Beloved, behold the glory and majesty of the love of God for you. He did this for you. This is nowhere more evident in Scripture than in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, this, this verse that is familiar even among unbelievers, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now I'm referring to this second feature of, of God's love or the third feature of God's love, the manner of his love because that's how the manner of his love, that is actually exactly what it says in the original language. It's a little different in the English, and let me tell you why. For God so loved the world, it doesn't sound like in this manner. This is how God, this is how God loves the world, or, or loved you, loved the world. It doesn't sound like that, but if you were old like me, you would know that the word so, even in plain English, used to be used this way. For example, if you were to come and be one of our interns and we were trying to teach you how to preach or counsel, we would sit down with you and we would say, okay, when you're talking to someone about this particular problem, you do it, pay attention now, you do it like so. Or maybe you're, maybe you're crocheting something for a gift for Christmas and you're teaching your granddaughter how to do it. And she says, Grandma, show me how to do that. And you take your little needle or whatever. I don't know, I'm making up words here. But <laughs> and you start doing it, and you say, I'm going to do this very slowly. Watch it. Do it like so. Or you could say it like this. Do it in this manner. And here's how it sounds in Greek. Hutos gar agape sin. You hear agape there? Hutos gar agape sin. Theos, which means in this manner God loved the world. In this manner. In what manner? He gave his son, his only begotten son. That's how you know that God loves you. And the question is, will you by faith receive that love, that manifestation of love? Will you receive it or will you spurn it? Will you reject it? And Paul's point here is, if you are one of the many who have received it, you are eternally secure. You are secure. secure. I mean, just go back to the beginning of chapter 5. And just read all of, all of the things that we've already covered, that God has already given you peace with God being number one. 
the grace upon which we stand in Christ, all of these are securities. They are locks. They are guarantees that on the final day, you will be safe. You will be far more than safe. You will be gloriously welcomed as if you were the honored guest at the party. If you're not careful, we might understand this to be speaking of the extent of God's love, how big it is, how consuming it is. And while that may be implied in John 3:16, the text actually tells us the manner, the way, the means by which God has demonstrated his love for you. And how did God set his love on display in this world? He gave his son. He gave him, he gave him up to execution on the cross. He gave him up to atone for our sin as the appointed sacrifice. It's amazing when you read Hebrews. He's not only the sacrifice, he's the priest that makes the sacrifice. I have repeatedly taught from this pulpit that to love is to give what you have that the other person needs because God wants you to, no matter how you feel. That's an accurate definition of true love as God prescribes it in his word. But God doesn't demand of us something that he's not willing to do himself, at least in this regard. In fact, he is the ultimate model of how to do it, how to love. To love is to give. To love is to sacrifice what I have to meet the need of another. So what did we need? Well, we needed someone to bear the wrath of God that was our desert. We deserved it. We needed someone to experience, listen carefully, we, all eyes up here for a minute, right? We needed someone to experience hell for us. How did God resolve that? He sent his own son to experience hell for you. Who would ever do something like that? Who in the world would ever pour out upon us such love? Love to undeserving people. And Paul is telling us that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus himself put it like this. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know what? We use that a lot when we're talking about soldiers, about people who make great sacrifices for one another. My friends, that phrase comes from Scripture. This is Jesus talking about literally laying his life down for us. And he says, greater love, greater love has no one than this. And a man laid down his life for his friend, and this is what the Son of God came to do. And he did it at just the right time. He did it in, in just the right manner. He came to love you by dying in your place. He came to bear your hell 
the hell you deserve so that you could experience heaven with him. And when you think about it, the experience of Jesus on the cross was the nearest thing that we can conceive of as hell on earth. In fact, if you did a study of hell and then you study the evangelist's description of what took place on the cross, there are many one-for-one parallels. C.I. Packer is helpful on this when he writes, look at the cross and you see what God's judicial reaction to human sin will finally take. What form is that? Well, in a word, withdrawal, deprivation of good. On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his Father's presence and love. All the sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. All. All enjoyment of God and of created things. All ease and all solace. All friendship. All of it were taken from him. And in their place there was nothing but loneliness and pain. A killing sense of human malice and callousness and the horror of a great spiritual darkness. The physical pain, though great, for crucifixion remains the cruelest form of judicial execution that the world has ever known, was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' sufferings were mental and spiritual as well. And what was on. What was packed in less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself, as mental sufferers know that individual minutes can be. And so too, Packer writes, those who reject God's face, the prospect of losing all good, and the best way to form and idea of eternal death is to dwell on the cross. You want to know something of the love of God? Dwell on the cross. Bruce Shelley, in his wonderful book, you should have this, some of you do because you homeschool and maybe you've used it, in his book, Church History in Plain Language, He wrote on the very first line of the book, the very first line of the first chapter of his history of the church, he writes this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. That's the kind of love that God has for sinners like you and me. He willingly willingly took to himself such humiliation, deprivation, and pain out of love for you. This is love to you. This is the origin of your justification. God bestows upon his enemies his saving, sacrificial love. This is God's ultimate objective, revelation of divine love. And I want you to see something here that 
if I can just break away from my notes here. I always get in trouble. Last week I said it was in chapter 4 when it was in chapter 3. That's okay. We're just family here, right? And so here we are in Romans 5 and at the end of um, um, I'm not seeing it. Where is the part about the Holy Spirit here? In the footsteps. We're going to talk about this next week, I think. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Spirit's job in ministering to you is to remind you and give you the capacity to experience the glory of this love. He pours it out on you. He floods it over you. This is what God has done for you. This is what God continues to do for you. And it is yours if you are willing to receive it. Well, beloved, let me, let me just say one more thing here. I think this is why the Apostle Paul loved the cross so much. I think it's safe to say that Paul knew better than hardly anyone, almost everyone, having been a persecutor of the church, Paul understood the love of God more than most. Let me just show you a couple things that he's written, Galatians 6:14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power to do what? Power to save. Save from what? Save from the wrath of God. This is what your justification is all about. And the origin of your justification is the eternal love of God. I plead with you. If you don't know this love, I'm not talking about some feeling of love, although that may very well come. But if you don't believe the love of Christ, that he did this for you, then you are lost. Without God, without hope in this world. But this very day, that could change. If you would put your faith, your trust, all of your allegiance, all of your hope in life and death on the great love of God, whose name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks, praise for your goodness and your mercy, your kindness to us, but most of all, Father, we praise you for your great and magnificent love. We ask, Father, that you would so move in the hearts of your people that you would give us the capacity to worship you because of these things, and that by your grace some would turn their backs on their sin and fly to Christ this very moment and find a Savior who willingly will Receive him or her. 
Father, be glorified in the salvation of those whom you love, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.